listening from your heart, a lot of people will start when you ask them a question, they'll say, I think I should do this. Or I was thinking about this. I think what I should do next is, and immediately you're in your head. If you start your answer with, I think you're in your head, but if you can drop down to your heart and really listen from here and really answer, I know, I know in my gut that it's this, that's always going to be the right next choice when you're making a big decision. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor, Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. This was my first time hearing about sobriety, like soul Briety, and it probably is yours too. It's actually the name of Dr. Elisa Hellerman's new book, Sobriety, where in this podcast, we talk about trauma, addiction, the soul. And she mentioned a few things that really made me think deeper. One of them was listen to the whispers more. And I asked her to take me through that because I thought, wow, hold on. There's a lot more to this. And she says, the way I listen is I take time to draw, to write, to knit anything that allows me to go deeper on the quiet time. That was really strong for me. We'd go into depth psychology, which I didn't know much about and you're going to love. We talk about getting clear on your next goals, on what we need to do now. And our goal isn't really to eliminate our complexes. It's to know that they're there and to understand them better. You're in for a treat on this one. Listen in. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts. I'm your host, Tristan. And of course, we're with Success Enterprises. And today I've got a surprise for you. I've got Alisa Hellerman. And we're going to be talking about something different, but extremely pertinent when it comes to your business and your personal growth, which is what we're all about here. So Alisa, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I love your podcast. Thanks. I'm excited because I don't think we've ever really talked about this topic. It's it's kind of cool. Your book's called Sobriety, right? Sobriety. Yes. And what what a great title, first of all, because it's like, oh, this is different. You can already tell from the title. It's like, this is different. Oh, good. Got that. I like that. So trauma, addiction, soul searching, reconnecting with that. I like that. I think it fits perfectly into the world that we're in right now through COVID, where we're seeing such a massive challenge with mental health. What's the idea behind behind this? Did it come from your personal experiences, or did it come from you watching what was happening all around you? Well, both. But what happened for me is I've been sober from drugs and alcohol for 20 years. Um, after I got sober, I had what I would say, quote unquote, success in my previous job, which was in the entertainment industry. 
Um, I was an agent and a talent agent and a partner and ran the talent department and enjoyed a lot of different things that, um, and, and was really loved what I did. I loved being a talent agent, but after a while, the healthier I was getting, I started to realize not in real time, but in retrospect that I had sort of traded one addiction for another. And that was while I put down alcohol and drugs, I picked up this addiction to shiny new things. And everything that I wanted was external. I wanted to get that title, get that office, get that client, get that car, get that house, get that guy. And I started to become addicted to money and power and prestige. Wow. That's a little different. I, I Now I'm thinking like, it are a lot of people when it comes to just living through life and, and doing your business. Is it something that, that you've seen people do without really taking time to reflect so they can change? Do people actually go from one addiction to another addiction that they build through these habits? Is that what you've seen? Yeah. And I think it's deeper than just a habit. Essentially, I look at addiction as if you want to look at it from a sobriety perspective as well, is a crisis of meaning. And more likely than not, what lies underneath the addiction is what I call the what and the why. And the what and the why are, you know, normally 99% of the time, trauma, unhealed trauma, or from a sobriety perspective, soul loss. And essentially, what we do easily is we search for things outside of ourselves, materialistic things. We want instant gratification. That's the world that we live in. And we want something to make us feel better. And when we put down drugs and alcohol, if we haven't really healed those inner wounds, those trauma wounds, those wounds from childhood, whatever those sort of post-it notes are that we've stuck on soul and created a narrative around. If we're not really looking at our inner world and we're only focused on the external, which is of course the easier way, then it's likely that we would pick up something exterior to make us feel better instantly. I always say to clients, well, what's the expiration date on that really expensive pair of sunglasses you just bought that you can't afford? Or that girl that you just went out with and didn't really like. How long are these things actually going to make you feel better? An hour, a day, a week? The only way we're going to get consistency and long-term recovery is by doing the inner work. So to answer your question, I went back to school after deciding that I was going to retire from the film industry and was getting my master's and doctorate in depth psychology, which is oriented around the unconscious, essentially, and specifically focusing in somatic studies, so both trauma and neuroscience. And when I went to write my dissertation after three years of being in school, I had done so much work on myself through a depth psychological model which sobriety became, that I wanted to ask the question, could doing soul-centered work 
help with long-term recovery in from addiction? And the answer to the question was both was yes, but the caveat was that while I saw the participants using different methodologies and different ways to connect to soul and different ways that they were having their aha moments and doing their inner work, they didn't have language around it. So they were unable to do it when they needed to, except they didn't know how. And I also couldn't teach it because they didn't have language around it. So that's where sobriety came from. And I started to work on it, not only on myself, but on my clients during that time. So it, it came out from your thesis into what we have now as a full book, right? Yes. The book is also a bit of a prescriptive memoir in the sense that it tells my story through addiction and trauma and also the stories of clients, obviously not real clients, but meetup clients. And the way that we talk about doing soul work or the way that I talk about soul in general is through storytelling. There's not, you can't wrap your arms around like, what is soul? We are soul. Soul is the essence of who we are. Um, It's our unique way of being in this world. It's our meaning-making machine. It's the times when we feel most at home, when we feel that sense of peace or inspiration or awe. And so the way to explain it was only through storytelling and metaphor and a more poetic sense of explaining these harder concepts. So it's all done through storytelling. At what point while writing your thesis and creating this book, did you decide to to make a company out of this? This is kind of cool. Yeah. So so that was a little bit before. So what happened was mm. I did that first. Basically, and 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 I wrote, I started writing the proposal for the book during lockdown. I I had done the dissertation on sobriety and it was something that was brewing and something that I was working on personally with my clients, but not something I was sort of ready to to discuss or talk about or really didn't know exactly how to explain even. And but during lockdown, there was such an overwhelming amount of not just addiction, but mental illness, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. And so many people, specifically young people, were suffering so badly that I couldn't help everybody. And I wanted to get a I wanted a way to reach more people and bring this information to more people. And that's when I started writing the book proposal. But to go back, when I started to realize that I didn't want to be an agent anymore, which wasn't as simple as I woke up one day and realized I didn't want to be an agent anymore. I was sort of on this journey thinking that I keep had I had to keep getting there. And if I just got there, I would be happy. If I just got this, I would be happier. And I started hitting some brick walls, as you do when you go on a soul journey. You hear these little calls, these little whispers, and am I happy? Is this right? Do I like this anymore? 
And normally we just shush them away. They're, they're too big. We're not ready. We can't look at that yet. And then inevitably some sort of guide will appear where we recognize that either somebody else has done something that we want to do, or we read a book and think, hmm, maybe I can get a little bit curious about this. So that's what started to happen for me. I was disenchanted. I was running into brick walls. I wasn't happy. I decided to change agencies on a whim and walk across the street to a rival agency thinking I would feel better over there, only to get there and five minutes later realize same job. And then I thought about moving to New York from LA and doing the job there, got to New York and realized that's not it. So <laughs> yeah, I was forced, you know, essentially to go on this more inward journey and start to read books and meet people and tap into my curiosity and to pull the threads of things that I wanted to do. And essentially, you, yeah, go ahead. On that, only because now I'm talking more as an entrepreneur, all right? On this process of trying to find out what's going on with yourself, like going across the street to the competitor, going to New York, like this is all familiar for, for us entrepreneurs. What was it that, that slowed you down to realize, hey, you know what? It's not everything else. It's actually me. How do we, how do we shortcut that to get there faster? Is there a shortcut? I think that there are no shortcuts, but maybe if we're more willing to listen to those whispers sooner, it can save us from having the brick house fall on our head. And I tend to do that more now, but back then, before I knew what any of this meant, it was harder to listen to those calls because you're in these golden handcuffs, you have this big career you're doing something that you've spent 15 years of your life working towards. And there's a little voice saying, I don't think I like this anymore. And you don't really know what to do with that. So take me through the process so that we can, once we're, because we, we all hear it, right? I know what you're talking about, the whispers. How do we slow down enough to be able to listen to it and actually start doing something about it is it is it a writing process that you have is it is it now a system that you've implemented what does that look like mm -hmm. so I think we can always listen when we get quiet enough for me there was something that happened specifically um and I don't want to sort of give it away because it's a good chapter tell me what chapter it is so I know or do you know I think it's chapter five okay Got it. and basically Something happened that was unexpected and it gave me a little bit more quiet in my day to really start to listen more to that voice that was now screaming at me. And so what I did at that time is I thought, okay, I need to get out of town for a minute. I'm going to go somewhere and I'm just going to maybe take a vacation by myself I was afraid to take a vacation by myself. I didn't want to be completely bored. So I took my dad. So we had meals together. But during the day, I spent a lot of time reading, voraciously reading books that I found 
interesting just by their titles or what they were about. And I started reading and you would get, I would get inspired by little things that people were saying. And one of the things that I had read was make a list of all the things that you've ever wanted to do, even when you were a little kid. Think about the things that made you happy when you were a little kid. Think about the things you wanted to do and the things that you find interesting, maybe the shows that you watch, maybe the books that you read that maybe you don't necessarily want to do, but that are interesting to you. Like, let's get all that on paper. So I put together this massive list. And when I came back, I went through it and I thought, what are tiny little right actions that I could take towards learning a little bit more about the top 10 things on my list? And so three of the things, one of them was I wanted to learn more about addiction. It wasn't just me that was sober, but I had a lot of family members in and out of recovery and a lot of friends. So I wanted to learn more about addiction. I wanted to be of service to more women. And I wanted to be an emergency room doctor. Here I am like in my early 40s. I am an attorney. I have this big career. And going back to medical school seems like complicated, right? But I think it's just an exercise. Don't rule anything out. Let's start investigating what classes I might need to take in order to take the MCATs. I took class at night while I was still working at the agency. So like I was saying before, just pulling the threads of things that were interesting. Mm-hmm. That that's That's showing that you're actually listening to to that little voice because you took time to write it down go through the exercise kind of get clarity right and that that's important how do you how does you suggest that people that are just on autopilot going through fast just responding to everything how do you suggest that that we slow down to to listen in what does that take on our part on a daily basis well there's a couple is that we can go inward, right? That we can tap into that unconscious part of ourselves. Um, One of the ways is through dreams. We're constantly tapping into that unconscious imaginal space, if you will. And so when we wake up, help writing down our dreams, looking at them, not trying to analyze them, but really looking at the cast of characters that show up, the image, the images that show up, and really asking them in our own active imagination, what are you here to tell me? It's not about analyzing the dream, right? In archetypal psychology, we believe that these images, these myths live in an imaginal world in our both our personal unconscious and our collective unconscious. So I think that's one that's one way. If you're a dreamer and you wake up and you're interested in that. Creativity is also an excellent way in. So taking the time to write as you were saying or draw, paint, sculpt, knit, anything that's going to touch into that creativity and give you some inspiration in those times we tend to get more messages. There's another exercise I like too on the writing front where I will ask a question to myself and then with my non-dominant hand, so my left hand, I will write the answer. And in doing so, 
you're really focused on being able to write rather than what you're saying because it's, and so it sparks a different part of your brain. That's brilliant. That's such a good idea. I was talking to. I didn't make that idea up, but that is something that we can do. I like that. Uh, Yeah, it's a good, it's a good one. That's a good one. I mean, it plays with a different part of your brain. Uh, Jim Quick, who wrote Limitless, mm-hmm. was like, man, every morning, try some, try doing something with your opposite hand, like brushing your teeth. You'll see what I mean. I'm like, okay, I'll try exactly, that. Exactly. Exactly. Because when you're doing something with your non-dominant hand, you're really focused on the action and you're not in the thinking part. That's brilliant. I really like that. Now. Take me through building this new company because we're all listening in. And first of all, we're I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone listening in is impressed that you took on this, I think, pretty enormous topic for where we're at right now in society. How did you build the business from it? Was it you? Was it you and a friend? Was it you and a whole bunch of people? How did this start? And how did you pick it up? Because we all have all of these failures moving forward, right? Yeah, I love that you said the word failures. So for me, once I realized that I did want to leave the industry, it was, well, what am I even going to do? And I really had to get my head around this idea of, was it a failure to leave or could I redefine success as achievements, be really proud of all the achievements that I had accomplished during that time and feel like I was ready to go and create some more? Um, Really shifting that perspective allowed me to go deeply into my own belief system that I had accomplished this once before. I had accomplished sobriety against everything I thought was possible. And so why not? Why not me? Why couldn't I do something different? So that was a really important piece. I have a question about that only because as we deal with big changes, shifts, like you you were going from one to something completely different, we also deal with that consistent thought that what the hell are you doing how are people how are people going to see you are you going to fail you're probably going to fail how do you how do you take that on daily because it doesn't just happen one time it's consistent for a while how do you deal with that it's so it's so good so back to like how i was doing it and then of course the you know the naysayers and your own inner critic coming out but Basically, right, I'd been taking these classes and what I was learning was all this information about addiction, about Mm -hmm. the brain, about trauma, this new word that I hadn't even heard and I'd been 10 years sober already. And so I thought, wow, there's all this information out there. I don't know it. I don't think a lot of people I know know it. And I sense that there's a business here for me. I don't know what it is. I don't see myself being a therapist or a counselor, but I'm a businesswoman at the end of the day. And how am I going to create a business? And so what I did was I I also started simultaneously back to my list, being of service to women, 
was I was also going to a women's sober living once a week and doing group there and meeting all these new women and talking to them about what was going on in their lives. And so I was around this sober living and I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll open a sober living while I'm still agenting. Mm. So I decided to do that. I opened a sober living for young male adults. Whoa. And I had that sober living for two years. In the very beginning, it became obviously much more time consuming than I would have imagined. Mm-hmm. And I eventually retired from the entertainment business. And two things happened. One is when I started the house and I had nine young adults living there, I started focusing all my energy on managing them in the way that I would manage my movie star clients, right? That's what I knew how to do. so cool. That was my, okay, this isn't working. Let me call this person. Let me get that therapist on the phone. Why are we seeing this doctor? This doesn't make sense. Your mom doesn't know about this. We need to coordinate. So I just jumped in in my agenting managerial skill set and was doing that for the boys. That's brilliant. So that was happening. And then it was a little newsworthy when I left Hollywood to go into the field of addiction. And so I started getting a lot of calls from people I knew. Where do we go? Who's the best doctor? Who's this? Who's that? And so I found myself having this little consulting business on the side. I love that. But right. So those two things were happening. And I started to feel like I didn't know enough. I wasn't, you know, I I couldn't be, I couldn't be not the smartest person in the room when I was talking to doctors and giving explanations. And mm-hmm. I just felt like I didn't know enough. You know, my friend said to me, Well, being an agent is now going to be stinky cheese, and you should probably move on. And get a degree in what this is um, and have something and really have a degree, especially as you move into your fifties. So I decided to go back to school for my master's and doctorate. And so I was doing that. And in doing that, I was the kind of student, much like an agent who would read the book and call the author. Or <laughs> article and call the you know the neuroscientist and be like, That's hey, funny. you want to have lunch with me? <laughs> right. So I just was. Well, hold on, Elisa. That's not typical. That's know, hilarious and awesome. Everyone at school would be like, if literally, if the person wasn't already dead that had written the book or the article or whatever, they'd be like, by next month, Elisa will have had lunch with them. That's, well, wait, hold on that. Because that's important too, um, because you, you took it an extra step. Entrepreneur mentality, right? Solopreneur mentality. Which one of those talks or lunches or interviews was what really stood out for you? So there were two. So one of them was Peter Levine, who is um, the founder of Somatic Experiencing, which is a trauma modality. He's written many successful books. And, you know, these people like Peter Levine and Thomas Moore, who was a depth psychologist and a monk, and it also wrote many books on soul. These were my new, you know, I was fangirling after these guys, right? So 
getting to them wasn't that easy. But then I'd gotten a call from, I've never, never even told this story before. So I had gotten a call from um, a friend of mine who worked at um, NBC and they were doing a segment on Tiger Woods and they wanted to do it about trauma and really, well, they didn't say that. They said to me, we want to do something on Tiger Woods. We don't want to talk about addiction, but we want to talk about what's going on and we want it to be beautiful. And do you have any thoughts? So I said, yeah, yeah, I do. I said, let's make it about trauma and let's make it about the inner work and let's talk to it from a soul depth psychology perspective. And they said, tell us more. So I ended up working on this segment and they said, who should we have? And I said, well, Peter Levine, (laughs) Thomas Moore. (laughs) And I think there was one other person I don't remember. And they said, great. Can you get in touch with them? And I was like, absolutely. That's so cool. So I was able to call up and say, hey, I'm working on this project with NBC about Tiger Woods. And would you have time to talk? And so that was my segue into meeting them. And that was the start of, you know, Thomas ended up being on my dissertation chair and overseeing my dissertation because of that. And, um, and Peter became a lifelong friend and mentor in a lot of ways as well. That, I love that story. Yeah. That's so cool. All right. So now take me back to you're in school. People are now calling you and saying, Hey, whoa, huh? what about this? How do you do this in mm-hmm. consulting? How mm-hmm. did that start growing from there? So that started growing just organically, word of mouth. Um, and basically as I was in school, I started learning more. I started to feel more confident that I had the advice to give, that I had the education to then explain to them what did exist out there and how it worked and why. And so after two years of having the sober living, I realized what I was really passionate about was not necessarily having the house but about this management. And so what I did was I did what I knew how to do. I created a recovery agency based on the talent agency model that when I was an attorney, people would come to me if they needed legal help. When I was an agent, they would come to me if they needed career help. And where were people supposed to go that wanted help with their mental health. You know, I found that most people were calling their dentist if they needed a good therapist or their Aunt Sally once went to this treatment center and maybe we'll go see that and we'll Google this. And it seemed so archaic for the time that we're in. And I already was starting to know how much science and information was changing daily and how complicated it was to understand neuroscience and that it was going to be. So I wanted to create a place where people could come and say, this is what's going on and now what? And then me and my colleagues could essentially do these fuller assessments and figure out what was going on and offer them solutions. 
and stay with them. And the business sort of grew over the next 11 years out of what my clients needed. I realized that they would walk in the door through either an addiction or a substance problem or mental illness, whether that would be anxiety or depression or some sort of trauma. And so we had to adapt. We had to have crisis management. We had to really understand the psychiatric component and be able to bring on a medical professional quickly. I had to understand the law in many different areas about what it was like to get someone on a psychiatric hold. Mm. So we were learning as we were going about what was important. There was one time when I had a client who was also facing criminal charges and he had a really big attorney, divorce attorney, very famous. And the attorney called me and said, you know, what do you think? Do you think we can sort of try to get some sort of alternative sentencing? Could you put a plan together? And so as I started talking to him and he said, wait a minute, are you're a lawyer? And I said, yes. And he said, did you take the bar? And I said, yes. <laughs> you're a lawyer. Did you take the bar? That's hilarious. I said, yeah, I took the bar in New York. I'm still, I'm still a lawyer. Yeah. I said, I don't practice. And he said, but I can waive you in under attorney client privilege and you can come to court and be part of the process and sit with the DA and explain everything. And so I was like, yeah, yes, I can. And so things like that started to happen. And, you know, and I found myself sitting second chair to this huge defense lawyer in this courtroom thinking in my wildest imagination as an attorney that never would have, our paths never would have crossed. But here I was really using something for what I loved and what I believed in. And so everything that I had ever done from going to law school to working in the entertainment business set me up for success if I just followed what I was passionate about. And also, I think if you would have said to me from day one, you're going to create a company that does recovery management, that didn't even exist. That wasn't even a real thing. People didn't do that, that didn't exist before. So I was building a company that never was. So cool. That's so cool. I'm listening and I'm thinking, going back to that list that you wrote out from one of the books that you were reading. Mm -hmm. And then that list really was like at the very beginning, you mentioned to me that it starts with the what and the why, right? Mm -hmm. That list was really tied to the what and the why that got you to where you wanted to be, right? And everything mm -hmm. from there on was self-fulfilling. It's really cool to see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. It really is tied to the what and the why. Uh, one of the books that I read during that time was by James Hillman, who's also a depth psychologist, who wrote a book called um, The Soul's Code. And in that book, he talks about the acorn theory, which is what he describes as an acorn knows exactly that it's going to turn into an oak tree. It doesn't need anyone to tell it what to do. It doesn't need any special water. It doesn't need any special, you know, anything. Mm -hmm. It just knows that this is going to be its journey, that it's already going, that it already is predispositioned to become that oak tree. And what James Hillman talked about is that we all have that too, essentially. We have that 
soul's code inside of us that knows exactly where we're going. That we, of course, have free will, but that the answers to what should I be doing next are always inside. And they come up as our intuition, or we get a felt sense in our body. We feel it in our stomach. We feel it in our hearts. And so I started to practice that. I started to listen from my heart and not my head because my head was still quite impulsive and could be manipulative and driven by ego, right? So, or my disease, and I call her Trixie. That's another episode. That's <laughs> another episode. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so basically, listening from your heart, a lot of people will start when you ask them a question, they'll say, I think I should do this, or I was thinking about this. I think what I should do next is, and immediately you're in your head. If you start your answer with, I think you're in your head, but if you can drop down mm-hmm. to your heart and really listen from here and really answer, I know. I know in my gut that it's this, that's always Mm -hmm. going to be the right next choice when you're making a big decision. Does that, that whole thing you just outlined for me on how to approach is, does that have a lot to do with depth psychology on how you approach that or no? I think in a way, yes, because you're, Depth psychology is about always going inward. It's it's very like non-pathologizing, but rather strength affirming. So we're not trying to do, to look at something and say, oh, well, that's a disease and we can't do it. We're saying, why is this showing up right now? We're always asking the question about why. We're always trying to heal things by making what is unknown known. That's cool. I see what you mean. It really is about tapping into that for a moment. Because when we're in here, when we're in our heads, and right, there's lots of different messages coming up. There's lots of different personas, so to speak. And I'll just use Trixie as an example. So Trixie was initially a mask I was wearing. It was a you know, I was showing up at this addict as this addict, but it was more than that. She dressed a certain way. She was inappropriate. She was loud. She was sloppy. She was manipulative. She lied. And I believed that I was her. I didn't realize that I was, in my essence, I was still Elisa. I believe I started to believe I was Trixie and that I was sick. And that there was no way out, so I should just keep going. And essentially, there was a moment where I had that aha moment of maybe she isn't me. Maybe she's part of me, but she isn't my soul self. And along the way in school, there were other parts of myself that I started to become in conversation with. And we call that personification. And when I started to realize that Trixie was not only a mask that I could take off, but more importantly, 
was a part of me that I could personify and give her autonomy, that she could become my greatest ally and a teacher as well, that she was never going to change. She's always the impulsive part of me. But right now I can check in and go, oh yeah, that was, that Trixie, good idea, but like, we're not doing that right now. But if I was in a dark alley in a scary situation and I needed some quick thinking and maneuvering and, you know, someone stuck me in a dungeon, you better be sure Trixie would be coming up with ways to get out of there. All right. Let, let's go deeper on that a little bit because I, I've heard about this before and now I'm, I'm curious, what does, what does creating a different persona do for, let's say us, right? Is it, is it the idea of being aware of aware of it more so that we have more control over how we handle it? Or is there something else there? Definitely. Um, so right, there's a there's a saying of the goal is not to eliminate our complexes, but to understand them. Right? That the things that we don't understand, that we aren't willing to look at will end up ruling our day-to-day behaviors and our personality. So it's important to know what does exist in the unknown. Trixie, for me, when I first got sober, I heard people talking about the disease and that I would have stinking thinking or something like that. Right? That's a good one. So I thought, well... Okay, so I put down the drugs and the alcohol, and now you're telling me that my brain is always going to be a little off. Mm, I'm not. I'm not down with that. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I wanted to distance myself a little bit so that essentially I could really work on getting better, and also was understanding that she wasn't going to go away. That essentially this disease or this pathology was a part of me and that it was only by really, really believing in her and really understanding her and most importantly, respecting her that I was going to be able to stay sober. Because the minute I thought I was better or that she didn't exist or that it wasn't just waiting for me, one drink away was the minute that I was in trouble. And to have a healthy amount of fear, if you will, about relapsing was was needed in the beginning of sobriety. And still today. I like that. That does explain it a lot better uh, for me. So that question was for me, Lisa. Just saying, I was like, this this is cool. I, I like that. And you... Here's, I'm just paraphrasing what you said earlier for those that may have missed it. It's uh, our goal is, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you said our goal isn't to eliminate our complexes. It's to know that they are there. And to understand right? them. Or, and to understand them. I love that. That really puts it in perspective. We don't wish to get rid of the inner critic. We don't wish to get rid of the Trixies or the inner child, if you will, right? So we're just looking to really understand them. 
And a lot of these inner voices, we will look at them from an archetypal perspective. We know there's a villain. We know there's a hero. We know there's a wise man. And so it's comfortable for people to sort of tap into that archetypal structure. But for in-depth psychology, archetypal structures live in the collective unconscious. They're for all of us. But our in our personal unconscious, they're more of these feeling-toned images and ideas with an archetypal center, if you will. So while Trixie might have been the quote-unquote villain at her core, she also had her own set of ideas and an image of what she looked like, which is, you know, uh, which I had one in the beginning. I have one now as me and her have grown up more and one of what she might look like in the future. Um, But she is much more of an autonomous individual and an image that lives in the imaginal space. Um, The imaginal is a term that was coined by Henry Corbin, a French philosopher, and he created the word the imaginal because he wanted to talk about our inner realm. And to use the word imagination felt childlike or not real. And the imaginal is very real. It's our inner world where our personal myths and our archetypes and so on live. Got it. You know, you you go into this and I feel like we're barely scratching the surface of your book. <laughs> well, the book is, you know, the book is to begin to have the conversation about yeah. can... If we pay attention to soul, if we look at trauma as soul loss, not to the not to the extent that anything any other modality in is not is not good. All these modalities are excellent. There are so many modalities that are out there from for addiction, for depression, for mood disorders, but all of that and for trauma. This isn't to the exclusion of any of those. This is more of the thread, I think, between everything. Soul work is something mm-hmm. that we can do on ourselves. It's something that we don't need to be sitting in the therapist's office for. And it's personal. And I think with my clients, a lot of people were looking for a way to take back their sense of agency. And to be able to work on themselves as well, because no one understands you the way you understand yourself. And so for me, soul work became about that next level of going deep, or as I like to say, growing down. We will all grow up, but not all of us will take the time to grow down into the essence of who we are. And so the book is told through my story, through the stories of others about these experiences. And I think it teaches it better than if I was just going, okay, step one, step two, step three, this is how you do it. I started out writing a book that was more like that. And I kept coming back to storytelling, storytelling, storytelling. Which is the best way to connect with people. 
Alisa, where do we follow you? Are you on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok? Where do we go? So I'm on Instagram as Dr. Alisa Hallerman, and that's Dr. Alisa Hallerman. I'm on Facebook as Alisa Hallerman. I'm awesome. I'm going to yeah. follow you right now. So, and there's a website for um, RMA, which is drhallerman.com. drhallerman.com, and the book "Pick It Up Sobriety: A Plan to Heal Your Trauma, Overcome Addiction, and Reconnect with Your Soul." You can pre-order the book now anywhere books are sold. And the book will come to your house on December 6th. I got it on Amazon. So that was the easiest place for me right now. It usually is. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Elisa. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. This was awesome. And thank you so much for having me. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it. Oh,